So good morning. As usual, I count it a tremendous privilege to be here with you this morning sharing God's inspired and infallible word, examining this gift to us together, which we carry around under our arms or perhaps on our phones. This morning's sermon will not be the usual fare that you have come to expect here at Abiding Grace Church. What you've come to expect typically is expository preaching where we take a text, the text that is right after the last text in the series, and we take that text, we examine it closely, we mine it for the precious gems that it contains, and we seek God, His wisdom and His guidance in the details therein. Sometimes something happens that we simply must address topically. Something in our culture screams for a response. For example, six years ago I preached a sermon entitled The Kingdom of Christ versus the Culture of Death, which addressed the sinful scandal that is abortion. That was on Right to Life Sunday all the way back in January 2017. And that message stands as our statement on Abortion and its heinousness, and I trust that message, if you have heard it, is clear enough for all of you and the wider culture as to where we stand. Today, the elders of Abiding Grace Church have decided to do something similar. As you likely are aware, the U.S. Congress recently passed and President Joe Biden just this week signed to much fanfare in the presence of a couple of prominent drag performers, no less... President Biden signed the Orwellian-named Respect for Marriage Act, which notes, of course, among other things, that Oceania has always been at war with East Asia, regardless of what you have read. So we, the elders, are under compulsion to make a bit of a statement and to lay out from Genesis to Revelation the one true God's design for marriage. Before we dive into the text, though, we have to make one thing abundantly clear, and that is this. We are not simply talking about language. This thing going on in our culture is not simply about the word marriage. We are not simply taking issue with strings of letters at MiriamWebster.com. Brothers and sisters, what we are talking about this morning strikes at the very heart of the good design of a glorious God and a fallen humanity that is set in direct opposition and rebellion against such a good and glorious design. And it is a rebellion of the highest magnitude. Intended, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, it is a rebellion intended to strike at the very foundation of the one true God's created order. We should not make the mistake of yielding to the idea that we are merely wrangling about words. That is not what we are doing. This movement that we are facing in our country and in the larger Western culture is nothing short of a cosmic mutiny. A mutiny designed to bring chaos out of order, to replace human flourishing with decadence and decay and depression, literally to create an environment where death reigns, And life wanes. And a famous reformer once said, 
quote, though we be active in the battle, if we are not fighting where the battle is the hottest, we are traitors to the cause. End quote. Well, friends, here we are, and it's time to engage. We destroy arguments, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. So please allow me to provide you with a little spiritual ammunition. We begin at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. I will pick up in verse 18. Please follow along if you like. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, is at, la- this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, a few things from this text that may be obvious to us, but not to everyone in our culture. So then, let's together this morning make them clear. First, Yahweh, the Lord, says it is not good for a man to be alone, and so a helper fit for him is needed. Now, this fit helper, it's two words in the Hebrew, they're not magic. Some translations render them as helper suitable to or helper compatible with the old King James, a help meet. So we see that God provides first a human helper. For Adam had already cycled through all the livestock and the birds and the beasts, and a suitable helper had not been found. Second, we see that God provides the man, Adam, a female human helper. That is, God created Eve, not Steve, for Adam, as some say. Third, God provided Adam a female human helper. That is, God created only one human female for the one human male, Adam. And finally, we see that the one female human, also called a woman, for those of you keeping score, we'll come back to this. Finally, we see that the one female human, the woman, was created to be a helper for the man, Adam. She was to correspond to him in a hierarchical way. And this hierarchy is affirmed many times in both the Old and New Testament. Before the fall, before the Old Covenant was established, in the Old Covenant, and even now in the New Covenant. For homework, you can see 1 Corinthians 11. Second, what we see from this text in Genesis 2 is that in verse 22, the Lord God himself brings the woman he had created from the man's rib to the man, listen, as a gift. 
So men, husbands, if you're sitting here and you're feeling all puffed up about this hierarchical relationship that I just mentioned, I want you to remember at the same time that that woman there by your side, in your house, in your bed, she's a gift given to you. A precious gift from the one true God. And we see more of this in verse 23. Don't we look please with me? Question, how does the man Adam respond when he is presented with this gift? Like a kid on Christmas morning. You see how I wrapped that whole Advent thing? You got it, right? Genesis 2, 22 and 23. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, then the man said emphatically, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's much that could be said here. But in short, Adam is pumped. Third, We see from this text in verse 24 that this man-woman relationship has the clear implication of permanence. Please look at it again. Verse 24, Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Let me give you another place in the Old Testament where this same Hebrew word is used. It's in Numbers chapter 36, verse 7. You don't have to go there, just please listen. Numbers 36, verse 7. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God. He says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to. That's the Hebrew word right there. Shall hold on to. Every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers shall not be transferred shall hold on to there are no stipulations in numbers 36 or anywhere in the mosaic law for the permanent transfer of the people's inheritance between families or tribes and similarly there are no stipulations in Genesis 2 for the dissolution of the marital bond between a man and and a woman, and we will see this again in just a few moments from the lips of Jesus himself. Fourth, we see from this text in verse 24 of Genesis 2 again, please look again, that a marriage produces a new household born out of covenant. Genesis 2:24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh. Now, I'm not going to wax on this morning about the covenantal nature of marriage. If you know anything about the nature of covenants and the mechanics, if you will, of marriage, you may be able to piece together the details for yourself. If you have questions, feel free to ask. But the point is this. There is no room for any others in the marriage relationship. Once the marriage covenant has been established, it is primary, it is set apart and superior to all other relationships. It is contractual, broken only by the death of one of the parties of the covenant, and covenantally speaking, with the pain of death threatened for breaking its terms while both parties are alive. I got some nodding going on here in the the front, so 
That's encouraging. So with this seminal, definitional text in front of us, let us, Bible-believing, New Covenant members, summarize what we have seen. And please hear this. I'm going to boil it down this morning. From the very beginning of time, before the fall of mankind into sin, from the very beginning, God intended for marriage to be five things. I'm going to say this several times. Five things. Heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful. Let me say that again. From the very beginning of time, before the fall of mankind into sin, God intended for marriage to be five things. Heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful. Anything, any violation of these five principles falls short of God's original design for marriage and is to be rejected in the church age as an affront to the designer himself. Now, I know that there are a dozen or more questions floating around out here in what scientists call the ether. Most of which I am not going to address this morning as I appeal to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19, who re-establishes the good and original design of marriage for the church age. We heard them read earlier. You can go with me there if you like. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Picking up in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, if you would like to hear about polygamy in the Old Testament, I'm happy to discuss that at a different time. Time, Or if you would like to hear about Old Covenant divorce, as we see in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, or the so-called exception clause, which we see in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, then you'll have to stick around here at Abiding Grace Church until Pastor Scott and I finally make our way there, which is most definitely our plan. We're in Matthew 11. Might be a while. Of course, there's always email, too. And of course, it's also true that the marriage covenant is designed by God to produce precious little babies, because as it turns out, you need male and female parts to do that. But that's a whole different sermon. The purpose of the message this morning is to establish from the Bible God's clear, original, good, and glorious design for marriage. Again, God intended for marriage to be heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful. And any violation of any of these five principles falls short of this original design. 
And why is it so important that we in the church hold so rigorously to this clear, original, good and glorious design of God himself for marriage? Answer. Because God has also always intended to use this design as a picture of the good and glorious gospel rooted in the perfect life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection, and victorious ascension of his one and only son, Jesus, called Christ. And the New Testament texts that describe this are many and various. Let me just give you a few examples to make the point clear. You don't have to turn to these. Just listen, please. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. And Jesus, speaking of himself, said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 29, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He, speaking of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. We heard earlier from Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus, chapter 5, after he's describing what a human marriage should look like. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We'll come back to these. The point is this. At the end of this lengthy discussion describing the covenantal relationship, obligations between a husband and a wife, he ends the discussion by saying something that to me is absolutely mind-blowing. Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here he's, of course, quoting Genesis 2.24, the same verse that Jesus himself quotes in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. Therefore, Paul writes, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound... And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I remember reading through my Bible the first time, right after I had become a Christian 22 years ago. And I remember reading Ephesians 5 for the first time, and I literally stopped right there. And I thought to myself, what in the world does that mean? At the very least, it means this. That somehow, mysteriously, the husband-wife relationship, heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful, the husband-wife relationship in this life is somehow mysteriously designed to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and his people, the one whom he, the one whom he has, the ones whom he has redeemed by his precious blood, shed on the cross at Calvary, and that's why this is not just words. Words that we're haggling about with our godless culture. 
Let me give you one more text, though, because we're going Genesis to Revelation with the marriage motif this morning. You don't have to go there. Revelation 19, John writes this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must so rapidly defend God's good and original design for marriage. Because from the very beginning, marriage was designed and intended by God himself to be a picture of this great and glorious gospel which we have believed and which we preach. And this is why we cannot rejoice in nor even support the legislation that was recently passed by the Congress and signed into law by the President. Because it represents a distortion of God's good design for heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, joyful marriage. No man, no Congress, can any more change the definition of marriage than he can cut down a Christmas tree with a cat. That's an illustration you'll remember, I promise. For the record, please let me be clear that we are not talking about so-called interracial marriage, which was included in this law for political purposes. We support and glory in any heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful union between a husband and a wife, regardless of the melanin counts of the man and woman involved. With all due respect, please give me a break. What we cannot celebrate, nor even support, is the codifying into law the idea that two persons of the same sex can enter into some kind of relationship and have it be called marriage. Again, this is a distortion of God's design, and we reject it on the basis of God's inspired word. Church, we have an obligation not only to proclaim what is true from God's clear word on this matter, but we also have an obligation to warn the culture around us that God's judgment will not tarry long for cultures or for nations which celebrate what God abhors. We should make it clear to our culture that God's wrath of abandonment is being revealed on the West in our day. Please see Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following. And it should be clear to all when they hear from the psalmist who says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Yahweh. Psalm 33 verse 12. And so we warn a man... A nation, a 
culture will reap what it sows. And we pray, and we pray, listen, whoever's listening, we pray for those who are in authority over us, that they would repent of their transgressions. They would repent of their celebration of the things which are an abomination to God, that they would be saved, so that we who believe and everyone might lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. We pray for them. We should pray more. One last time for those of you in the bleachers in the back. From the very beginning of time, God intended for marriage to be heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful. And anything, any violation of these principles falls short of God's original design for marriage and is to be rejected in the church age as an affront to the divine designer himself. Now, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where our culture is celebrating in the presence of drag performers? Where the culture in which we live is celebrating what the one true God detests? How did we get to the place where the previously esteemed Cambridge Dictionary recently decided to redefine the terms man and woman? Please allow me to give you a brief history. The Cambridge English Dictionary is published by Cambridge University Press, which was authorized and founded in 1534. Think about that. 1534. Almost 500 years ago, by King Henry VIII himself. The first two publications provided by Cambridge Press were... Anybody? You don't know? I'll tell you. Two treatises of the Lord, His Holy Supper, dated 1584. And the first Cambridge Bible... 1591, which was an edition of the Geneva Bible, the popular Bible translation of the day. As Pastor Mike will no doubt be overjoyed to hear me say, this was the Bible brought to America by the Pilgrim Fathers. And it was also the version of the Bible cited by William Shakespeare. And if you skim... The Our Story page at Cambridge Press, you will see other similar publications come out of that organization over the last four plus centuries. And then, in 2022, literally hot off the presses, somehow we get to the place where the once venerated Cambridge Dictionary has decided to ignore biology and the entirety of human history to redefine the terms woman and man. Cambridge now defines woman as, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. The term man is now defined as, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. 
And one commentator I read noted that the word dictionary is now defined as an object best used as a doorstop. How did we get here? From televised public service announcements in the 1950s, where Americans were warned about the dangers associated with homosexuality, to the place where the men and women in the U.S. Congress think they can redefine what God himself has created and designed and defined. Now, one tack I could take to answer this question is to focus on the culture. I could talk about the homosexual movement and its march through Western institutions over the past half century. From the courts, to the universities, to the media, to the medical establishment, and most recently to corporate America and even through the collegiate and professional sports organizations. All of these infiltrations are true and real and documented. Pastor Mike and I can provide references if you are so inclined to read about the details. But that's not the tack I'm going to take. Instead, I've chosen to focus a little closer to home. Let me set up the discussion with a couple of Bible verses. You don't have to go there. The Apostle writes this to the church in Corinth. After he discovers that they are tolerating a particularly heinous sin, he writes this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. And in 1 Peter 4, the Apostle Peter writes this, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I trust you see where we're headed. Question, when, over the past few decades, when the church itself has not provided the culture with a compelling view of God-ordained and God-designed heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful marriage, then why is any one of us surprised that the same culture runs off to pursue many and various, however abominable, alternatives. When the church has not been salt and light, when the church has not been the city on a hill, should we be surprised that those around us look for the city in the plain called Sodom? Has the church not accommodated the culture and its fads, and I spell fads with two F's, F-F-A-D, feminism, fornication, adultery, and divorce. Over the past half century, the church, so-called, has in so many ways turned a blind eye to the culture's leftward lurch, what one author termed Western culture's slouching toward Gomorrah, 
and not just turned a blind eye, but even accommodated these fads in such a way that it has virtually lost its ability to even speak against them in so many ways. And by the way, it's happening today as well, going even more leftward. Now, please let me be clear about a couple things. First, seeing as how we here at Abiding Grace Church, we are Baptists by confession, we should make sure that we know what the church is. See paragraph 33 of the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith for clarity on this issue. It turns out that so much of the data that identifies that the so-called church looks just like the world is what we might call the visible church at best. It is a mixed multitude for sure. You know, people who go to church and claim to be Christians when they're asked for their religion by some pollster on the phone. Now, we, believe, we Baptists believe in a regenerate church. And we trust. We trust that the true called out ones, that is what the word ecclesia means, we trust that the true regenerate church would not have the same statistics as either the culture or even the visible church. That is my hope. Nonetheless, even among those churches who desire to have a born-again membership, let's say, there has been some amount of capitulation. Not calling sin, sin. Not calling people in the pews to a life of consistent holiness, especially in the area of sexual sin. Not establishing a standard of heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful marriage among the membership. Now, regardless of what you think about any and all of these fads, feminism, fornication, adultery, and divorce, regardless of what you think about these things, at the very least, the pastors in the pulpits of Protestant churches should be dealing with these issues and dealing with them biblically, not acquiescing to the spirit of the age. Amen? Anyone? Second, again, please let me be clear. I am aware that many within the sound of my voice this morning have dealt with these things. And for the record, I am not personally immune. My intention in raising these issues is not to place undue guilt and shame on anyone, but brothers and sisters, let us not pretend that these things, these fads, are not distortions of God's good and gracious design. Instead, let us deal with them like we deal with any other sin. Any other sin in which we are or have been engaged. Let us repent of our sin. And believe the gospel of redeeming grace. 
Let us not smooth over any sin, but instead appropriate to ourselves the power of the precious blood of the Son of God. Let us take this, listen please, let us take this opportunity, the passage of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, let us take this opportunity to examine ourselves, to examine our relationship, to examine our pasts, And to ask ourselves, have we, in the church of Jesus Christ, have we lived into the high calling that our Savior and Lord has given to us? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I didn't write it, I just read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Some of you are saying with Jesus' disciples at this point, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. Fear not, my friends. For the Bible also says this. God's divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, listen, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Do we, church, believe this? Do we believe that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, not the least of which His Holy Spirit, which He has left for us in this age? Whom, sorry, He has left for us in this age, trying not to be a heretic. So what now? Where do we as God's people go from here? Here's the reality. Even with our humble little crowd here, there's no way that I can address every person's situation in detail. So I'm obviously not going to attempt such a thing. I don't think that's what the pulpit is for anyway. Instead, all I can do for us this morning, and I am preaching to myself too, all I can do is hold out to us the gospel. Jesus Christ himself and say, look at it. Look at him. Gaze upon his holiness. Desire it. Aspire to it. And you say to me, what does that look like, preacher? Uh, As I've said already, it begins with an honest assessment of where we, yes we, you and I, where we have been. In so many ways, we have all acquiesced to and accommodated the fads of the culture around us. And perhaps we have some repenting to do. Let us not shy away from this first part of the process. Either Jesus' blood shed on the cross at Calvary is powerful to cleanse us from our sin, or it isn't. And brothers and sisters, it is. In just a few moments we will sing, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Those are true and real. 
maybe after the repentance, there is reconciliation that is needed. And this is true freedom from the bondage of sin. May God the Holy Spirit convict and heal whatever is in need of healing today. Then we, the people right here in this room, we capitalize on this true freedom that we have in the gospel and we use it as a launch pad to live into holiness, to live into the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. Wherever we are, whatever we have done, we turn our eyes upon Jesus and not that we have already obtained this or am already perfect, but we press on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us His own. Brothers and sisters, we do not consider that we have made it our own, but one thing we do, one thing we do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12-14. Perhaps those are your afternoon meditation verses. This is the call. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Live lives worthy of the gospel which we have believed and which now we proclaim. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the call. This is the Christian life. Search the scriptures. Believe what you read there. Trust that God's Holy Spirit can, in fact, work holiness into our imperfect, often broken lives. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Funny thing about goals, right? They're um, out there. They're aimed at their future. But brothers and sisters, they're there. The prize is there for the taking. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then there's the even more difficult, even impossible call. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that she might be holy in God's sight. Let us together make heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, joyful marriage compelling to the lost and fallen culture around us. If not us, then who? Who who will do this? Who will hold up the standard if we will not do it? I'm not saying that we will be perfect. We are not and we will not be. But there is a goal. And when we fall short of that goal, which we will, then we come back to God's word. To where? Where, Brother Steve? To the one another's that we here at Abiding Grace Church attempt to drive home week after week. Two years now we've been at this weekly one another thing. 
When we sin against one another, which will happen for sure, then we confess our sins to one another, James 5.16. And then we forgive one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This is the gospel in our homes. Husbands and wives live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, 16. Care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Serve one another. Galatians 5, 13. On the days, listen, on the days when our spouse is not particularly lovable, we bear with one another in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. For God's sake... And I mean that literally, brothers and sisters, let us be kind to one another. Ephesians 4.32, let us not speak evil against one another, James 4.11. Let us not grumble against one another, James chapter 5, verse 9. I realize that the context of these one another's in the New Testament is primarily the church, but if there are two believers there, even if there's not two believers living in your house, why wouldn't we live these out? This is the upward call. And if it isn't, then I submit to you that I personally don't know the first thing about the Christian life. This is the upward call. And now more than ever, this is our, listen church, this is our opportunity to demonstrate to the world that we are different. We are set apart by God and set apart for God. That He might be seen to be great. That by His power and by His grace and mercy, our culture might see our good deeds. How we love one another. And give all the glory to our Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. And my household is not perfect. But by God's grace, and it really is all about grace, I'm not talking about rules. If that's what you heard, you haven't heard accurately. By God's grace, we are striving. We are reaching out for the goal. We refuse to have, listen, we refuse to have a defeatist attitude in spite of the fact that the goal is perfection and we are not. This is my exhortation to all of you this morning. Wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, whether you're married or engaged or single or divorced or whatever, this is part. What's happened to you, what's what's gone on in your life, this is part of your story of redemption. We have a God who can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Get into God's word. What does it say to you in your situation? Seek the counsel of the pastors. And whatever God's word says, believe it and do it. And ask God, beg him on your face if you must. Ask him that he would do a work of holiness in your life. That we, you and I, might provide to the world a compelling picture of God's good and glorious design for humanity for. Brothers and sisters, my beloved saints, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Let me just take one more moment to wrap up here this morning. Be as clear as I can be. To the Congress and to the current administration and to all the powers that be, 
No, we cannot. We will not celebrate nor support so-called homosexual marriage. In fact, we deny that there is any such thing as surely as we deny that Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. For the one true God himself has created and defined for those made in his image what marriage is. And we unashamedly declare that no puny man or group of puny men and women has the authority to alter or distort that definition in any way. With this act you have in fact to all the powers that be in fact and instead disrespected marriage. And for this we are grieved. For God, this book, has made it clear that marriage is and has always been, always intended to be, heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, lifelong, and joyful. And when a future generation of God's people is walking upon the rubble of a culture that has crumbled because it's simply rotted from the inside out, they too, they too will have this same book. For the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that we preach to you. We understand that we will be called names. We understand that we will be canceled. Or worse. And of course we understand that the culture's response to our stance will be that we are not being very loving. Well, this book has something to say about that too. It turns out that the most loving thing that we as the people of God can do is to proclaim the truth. Because true and godly love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13.6 So we understand that we will be called names and that we will be canceled and that we most certainly will be misunderstood, but God's firm stands bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19 and although we here in this place are not and will not be perfect in it in this life It is to this marriage ideal, this goal, that we will aspire. So that our God, our Savior and Lord, and this gospel which we have believed and which we proclaim will be magnified in our midst and in this culture in which our God has sovereignly placed us. May God make it so by His power and by His grace and mercy that flows to us from the wonderful cross at Calvary. Let's pray.